Hello, this is Comeback, this is Connor, and this is episode 120. My guest today is Steve Silvers. Steve is initially from Sheffield, UK, currently living in Oregon, and we're going to talk a bit about expat life and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Connor. Thanks a lot. Thanks yeah. for having me on. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, especially that, you know, we chatted briefly and you're from Sheffield, where I spent time at uni, but you are also quite familiar with Manchester, right? I certainly am, yeah. And I believe we have a, a common connection there. Yeah, I think we do. A football team? Football team, yes. Absolutely. I was relieved to hear that you weren't on the blue side of that city. So uh, that's, that's good. Never. We've got something to talk about. Yeah, I, I, grew up, <laughs> I grew up in Furswood, about a 15-minute walk from the ground. So I had to support Man United. Uh -huh. However, when I was growing up, <laughs> when I was growing up, it wasn't a problem because we had Ronaldo, Rooney, Ferdinand, Vidic. So we're winning, winning titles comfortably. And I was blessed, really, to witness that growing up. Yeah, yeah, dude. I, you know, it's amazing because, um, I mean, I guess we'll get into this as the podcast goes, but um, I miss the 90s <laughs> in England. I was in, uh, I was in uh, India at that time. And so I only saw things here and there remotely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it was something that, man, I would have given my right arm at the time when I was going to see United. It was, you know, basically from, you know, the early to mid 70s to the early 80s and uh, a little rough. Yeah, rough. who was in charge though? Was it <laughs> Sexton, Doherty, Atkinson, that type of, were, were those in charge at the time? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Tommy Doc was was my favourite and uh, I, I loved the team that he had. And even though the, you know, at Old Trafford, the results were generally mixed, um, you know, I just loved the style of play. Very attacking. I think if, I, if memory serves me correctly, I'm going back to the dark ages here, but memory serves me collect correctly um i believe it was gordon hill was on the left wing and steve koppel on the right mm. and it was just a very attacking team they bought really well i remember when they got frank stapleton from arsenal before that they had uh, what was his name um stuart pearson was a center forward mm. and you know just amazing just really attacking sammy mcelroy really attacking play yeah. um so you know i guess it, it that was the early blueprint i guess for the quote-unquote united way of playing yeah which yeah. i think is why why a lot of people really complain these you know or were um for a while you know under ollie that they weren't really attacking enough yeah absolutely built on wide players attacking players exciting players how did you go from being say a boy in sheffield to you know following man united this is obviously before the Fergie years. So what was it about United that appealed to you? Um, well, uh, my, uh, I spent a lot of time growing up with my grandfather uh, on my mother's side, who, um, who was a football referee. And um, so he was involved with the FA and he would get free tickets to go watch different games. And I always remember when I was, uh, I think it, well, dark times. Okay. So, United got relegated in, I think it was 74. It was, uh, yeah, To the yeah. second division. Oh, dude, I couldn't even believe it. <laughs> um, but <laughs> that's, that was my initiation into uh, Manchester United, the 1973 season. And because uh, my grandfather took me to see him play. So I got to see, um, um, I th I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that Dennis Law had been sold to City at that time. Because I think there was a, at the end of that year, there was a big controversy, right? The last game was City and United. Yes. And I think Dennis Law scored for City, and that's what put United down. Yeah, it's the back heel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's I've right. I've been on YouTube yeah. too many times. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, brutal. Um, so, anyway, I, it was really, it was, it, actually, it wasn't George Best that really caught my eye, even though I was, like, super young at the time. Um, it was uh, Bobby Charlton. And... I just liked the way that he played. And, um, you know, I, I just really fell in love with, with United. I, I couldn't really pinpoint exactly what it was that, that did it for me. But of all the teams my grandfather took me to see, um, you know, at one point he was involved with Sheffield Wednesday quite um, heavily. 
and um, he he uh, arranged for me to become the mascot for Sheffield Wednesday for a game. I was super pissed off. I didn't even want to do it. <laughs> and uh, but um, you know he was really trying to get me to you know support Sheffield Wednesday, his boy, boyhood team. But there's no way. I was just I don't know. As soon as I saw United, that was it. It yeah, was love were, at first sight. Yeah, you were hooked and. I suppose let's come to present day. Um, are you still following it now? And if so, I, I can imagine you are. And if so, how, what's your take on the situation? How do you feel about us coming into the new season? Um, I think it's looking good for us in the new season, actually. I, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not an advocate of Ollie out or anything like that. I, I really don't like the way that managers have just, you know, are fired really Recycled, quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we, you know, we just got to give people a chance to kind of really work a little bit and put their stamp on the team. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, you know, they're coming into the club with a team that was chosen by the previous manager and they have to kind of work with that. Um, and, you know, we can see that with, you know, Mourinho, you know, when he left. I mean, I did not like his style at all. Mm. Um, and I wasn't sure, to be quite honest, whether Ollie was was the man for the job, but I could see, even though the results weren't quite there when he first started, I could see there were signs that he kind of knew what he was doing and was working, you know, was really working behind the scenes quietly, Yeah, you know, on different things. And, you know, aside from anything, you know, the result of finishing second compared to how we were playing is quite an achievement because it, for the most part, it was almost unwatchable mm. a lot of times. Um, so I think that, you know, with a couple of players in key places, I think that we can do a lot. Yeah. And I think this, this next season, it's going to be very interesting. Maybe not this next season, but the season after. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm anticipating that we'll do uh, big things. Mm. I do agree with you on that. I think that Ole maybe has quietly gone behind the scenes to do a cultural reboot. He knows the club. He knows its traditions and its values. And he, you can see him trying to restore it the only stick to beat him with still is he still hasn't delivered the trophy and I think that Villarreal was a huge chance missed when I look back I think they were there for the taking and it just didn't happen for us on the night and I was a bit gutted about that yeah yeah for me too I mean it was you know in a lot of ways a lot of parallels with the England game you know the final recently Mm, you know that sort of style of play and you know as 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 a as a, a, a coach myself, you know, with my own team, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing, you know, that playing not to lose and playing it safe. And there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of allure to having that style of play, but I, I think that you're really, uh, you're really rolling the dice, you know, I think you, you know, and especially with a tradition like United of attacking, um, you know, I think, th- I think that it, it really showed the downside of that kind of strategy with England and then also with United. I think on any other day, United could have beaten Villarreal quite handily. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And now that you've mentioned England, I was going to touch upon there. Um, (laughs) Have you also been following England since the 70s? And um, what what are your... Have you ever seen England in the 70s? Oh my God, dude. (laughs) I've heard about (laughs) it. so, So bad. I mean... You know, I, I always felt I always felt compelled to follow England, you know, whenever they were playing. But just watching them play for so long, I mean, literally until I think until the 90s, it's not even worth talking about. You know, uh, my, again, my, my, uh, going back to my grandfather, my grandfather always, you know, would tell anybody that two, the two best things that ever happened in his life were in 1966, where England won the World Cup and I was born. So, oh, okay. And he says it in the... And he says it in that order. So <laughs> that, that gives you an idea of like all the pressure that these England players felt. It's like, you know, when people are talking about, you know, that England winning the World Cup is the best thing that happened over the birth of a child. Yeah. It's like, that's pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, I see. And then the closest they've come to getting a trophy since that was Sunday. But as we just mentioned, it, it just didn't go our way, especially at the end. We left it to a lottery. And when it, you know, came to crunch time, we just weren't able to deliver at the, the the vital moment. Yeah, yeah. What's your what's your opinion about the pick for um, who was taking the penalties? The penalty takers. I feel yeah. it's a, it's a tricky one, especially because 
Rashford and Sancho hadn't had barely had a kick all tournament, and then to call upon them when they've been sitting on the backside for three hours to take a penalty of that of, of that magnitude was a little bit. Yeah, it doesn't sit well with me. And having a 19-year-old as fifth, I would have li- liked for him to have put a Sterling or a Henderson, someone who's been here before in the big games like Champions League finals. I'd rather them be at the fifth point, you know, the pressure kicker situation, rather than a teenager. I felt that was... I've usually been supportive of Southgate. I think he's done a, a very, very good job. And this tournament, he's got a lot of calls right. But that penalty order, I wasn't particularly keen on it, I must admit. Yeah. I agree. I agree completely with that too, and I feel the same way about Southgate. Southgate. I think he's done an excellent job. Um, I think, I think he's a little on the cautious side. Mm, yeah, and, I agree with that. And sometimes, I, you know, like you know, like we were talking about uh, previously. I mean, it's, you know, there's a you're rolling the dice. I think with that, especially when at that kind of level, you know, with with those kind of games. I think the, you know, it was like United for half of the season. It's like, well, if you don't bloody attack, how are you going to score? Yep. <laughs> and if you're really not defending that well, how are you going to not concede? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, in a, in a way, and, and then, you know, and then you look at it and it's like, well, you know, well, maybe we can keep the ball in midfield, but then the midfield is lacking. So, you're just, uh, you know, it makes, it makes me scratch my head and wonder like why, you know, sometimes I think, I think managers just kind of have to kind of go balls to the wall and just be like, yeah, let's attack. You know, almost like, not like, not in the sense of like Leeds, where they push so many people up front that they got nothing in the back. Yeah, then they get you know? exposed. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, and I like that style of play and it's clearly working for them to a certain degree. But I think, you know, there's no balance there with that. So I'm not, I'm not talking about going from one extreme to another, but um, I think just in, a, in generally, the, generally the idea of, of being cautious I think has some merit, but I think you've really got to temper that with with letting attacking players attack, and particularly with a tradition like United's. Yeah. Then you know you've got to let people go. Absolutely. And get it and get it done. I mean, otherwise the crowd are just going to go crazy because that's what we're used to. Yeah. We want to see we want to see United's attacking, and um, and with England, I mean, you know, Luke Shaw did incredible. I'm super impressed with that guy. Yeah. Same. I think his comeback's been extraordinary, especially after it was. It was actually a bit. I say a bit too far. I think Mourinho was completely out of order the way he's been treating him the last four years. Absolutely, yeah. I mean that that's kind of what I was talking about a little bit too. You know that Ollie came in. You know, basically looking at the team that Mourinho had put together and dealing with the people that Mourinho had had, had outed. Yeah, and you know, Shaw being one of them, even though he was still at the club and. You know, Oli basically has resurrected his career, which is fantastic because yeah. he's clearly a player of quality. Absolutely, man. And then in terms of football as a whole, before we move on to um, mm. your travel life, um, mm. football from where you are, do you get to watch much of it? I believe the matches are on in the mornings and the early afternoons. Are you able to watch a lot of it? Because for me, it's I have to stay up really late for it. So it's weird, you know, talking right. to somebody on a completely different time zone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's not actually too bad. Usually, it's around, you know, um, seven eight o'clock in the morning, or it's midday, which is which is cool for me. Yeah. Um, you know, so I am able to catch quite a bit of it, but you know, most of the time I'm working or teaching class, so I don't I don't get an awful lot of time to watch a whole game. Um, but I do I do stay in touch with it and watch as much as I can. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so, uh, yeah, those uh, and and even even like watching watching United now, it's a far cry from you know like when I used to go to Old Trafford. I mean, it was I don't want to call it a dump, but it was kind <laughs> of a, it was a it was a little rough considering it was you know the ground for one of the biggest teams in in the world. Yeah, so, sure. <laughs> yeah, it was like standing in a in a shed. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad analogy. So then, <laughs> yeah, moving on to the expat life side of things, then, um, Steve. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. that um, you missed the 90s because of India. Now, do you mind, um, we were just chatting briefly before we recorded, you um, you moved to India for 10 years to become a monk, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Do you mind telling me about that then? How did that all start? That's quite an extraordinary story. Yeah, um, well, um, again, my, uh, my maternal grandfather, um, you know, was an influence on that. Uh, he, he was, you know, he, his father before that, 
you know, was stationed in India during the uh, British Raj. Mm. And um, I grew up kind of seeing, you know, like old Indian prints and stuff like that on my grandparents, you know, walls of their house. And, and you know, you know, my grandfather read me stories from Kipling and all that kind of stuff. And so it was always, it was always kind of in my consciousness as far as I can remember back. And he always told me stuff like, well, if you really want to find yourself, you should go to India, you know, things like that. So it was kind of in there from an, from an early, early age. I got interested. I was a big Led Zeppelin fan growing up. And uh, so I got interested in, you know, Indian music primarily through them. And, um, you know, so there was, there was a lot of connections right there. So actually going to India itself was not really that far out, you know, in terms of, you know, at least the way I was looking at my life, you know, from my teenage perspective at that time. Um, it was a bit of a shock from the rest of my family, but, yeah. um, but for me, it just seemed like a very natural progression. Um, and so I ended up, I ended up going there for that reason, you know, just to kind of find myself. I didn't have any aspirations to become a religious person. In fact, I didn't really like religion that much uh, growing up. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, it happened. I was open to it and I was literally really open to just changing my life and a whole different experience. Okay, that sounds like a good, you know, motivation to get out of the UK. When you're yeah. doing that and you arrive in India, what was your initial reaction? Um, as in, how were the first few months? Did you, what, what sort of things did you do, you know, in your quest to say, find yourself, etc.? Right. Well, I remember the, the, uh, the, when I first got there, I literally didn't really know whether to go left or right out of uh, Delhi airport. And... Um, I went right in case anyone needs to know that and uh, um, just basically, um, you know, set up camp in a, in a local hotel. And when I say hotel, I use that term very loosely. Let's put it this way. It was one of those hotels where, um, you know, you're signing in to, to get your room and there's a sign behind the receptionist that says, um, um, please do not die of, of overdose in this hotel. Uh -huh. yeah. so, <laughs> okay. So it was one of those kind of places. Um, it's a particular part of Delhi called Pahaganj, which is near the um, train station. And um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of tourists go there. Apparently, for some reason, a lot of Israelis end up in India, and apparently, quite a few of them end up ODing in in these hotels. So hmm. apparently, and uh, it seems to be frowned upon. So anyway, I ended up in one of those places, and. Um, and from there, really just kind of talked to the local people and, you know, took day trips to different, you know, different, different, um, I kind of combined it with, uh, with my love of history and things that I'd heard about India. Um, and um, so, I, you know, I did the usual tourist stuff, Red Fort, you know, that kind of thing. And then visiting different temples and then gradually kind of um, got to know a few people who then told me about different you know, spiritual teachers that were speaking. And so I'd go and check out different people at different temples and stuff like that that were talking and just listen to what they had to say. Some of them spoke English, some of them didn't. At that time, I didn't have much of a command of Hindi, so I couldn't really understand them if they yeah. didn't speak any English. Um, but a lot of times there'd be somebody there that did speak English that would translate for me what they were talking about or give me the gist of it. Um, and so basically from there, it was just, you know, really trial and error at that point. Yeah. And then were there any in these teachings, any spiritual messages at that time that appealed to you and made you want to stay longer? Hmm. Well, uh, that would probably go back to um, back to what was going on in England at that time. Uh, when I left school, um, it was the famous, you know, UB40, you know, one in 10. Yeah. Uh, song came out, you know, because there's one in 10 people that were unemployed in Britain at that time. And so basically I left school and you know went on the dole like everybody else and um you know thatcher was the prime minister at that point um the north of england was not a great place to be it was all a bit doom and gloom um there was a lot of uh at least around the circles that i was running in um there was a lot of racial tension um at that time um and i just kind of got sick of all of it and was looking for a clean slate and a fresh start and just to get away from 
just that bullshit. And I, you know, had enough of it, had enough of hearing about it and uh, was looking for an alternative to that. I just figured there's got to be a better way of approaching life other than this binary, like you're either a racist or you're not a racist. Yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? Nothing in between and no other alternatives. You know, it was just awful. Um, and at that time, you know, like in the early 80s, there was kind of a revival of like Scar and stuff like that. So, you know, there was a lot of skinheads that were into like, you know, Scar and reggae. And yeah, then there was right. a lot of a lot of skinheads that were into the whole racist thing, and you know I remember the National Front standing outside my school giving out leaflets and all that kind of thing, and Whoa. it was just brutal. It was just brutal, and um, and so uh, what I was really looking for was like a philosophy that I could follow that was practical, but also would give me something to, uh, I suppose connect with something bigger than myself sure and give and give me a um a higher perspective that i could aspire to you, you know what i mean that i felt like it would sort of elevate my consciousness rather than degrade myself yeah sure you know? and because like you know i mean even if you know and i you know i fell in the category of not being a racist um just in case that needed to be clarified <laughs> um and um you know and just even engaging in those kind of you know, discussions with people just felt really dirty somehow. You know what I mean? Like it, you know, it wasn't a great, a great place to be, to be around, especially in Sheffield at that time in the North of England, the steel industry just got closed down. The mining industry had been closed down. Um, there were riots in Sheffield. Um, the miners strike was happening. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And then on top of that, then you've got a sprinkling of this racial tension going on and it was all just kind of a bit much. Um, so, um, you know, eventually I kind of started hearing different philosophical concepts, like you're not the body that we're the soul rather than the body. And like, it's like nothing to do with this temporal material existence, mm. you know, that we're actually, you know, we're, uh, our consciousness is beyond that. And that really appealed to me. Um, so I just started pursuing, pursuing that line of thought and you know kind of un trying to understand the philosophy that surrounds that and supports it and what did it really mean yeah okay and with that then when you're you know exploring different philosophies and consciousness um mm -hmm. do you mind telling me actually how how the process works as in when you became a monk what um i'm trying to think how, how do i describe it what were the initial stages um what's the procedure like once you get there you know, how basically I'm asking you, how was the whole experience? Yeah. Um, well, it was, it, you know, it's a long time ago. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, um, it was, it was kind of a, it was sort of like, a, it wasn't like I fell into it. There was a certain amount of, you know, like I said, trial and error, kind of checking out different places. But I remember once, once I, I met this I met this older Indian gentleman and he told me to go to this particular place called Vrindavan, which is just outside of Delhi on the way to the Taj Mahal. And it's um, um, the whole uh, holy city, considered a holy city in India. Uh, there's 5,000 temples there, even though it's a small town. And he told me, he's like, when you hear the words coming from the lips of a saintly person, that resonate with you and that you feel that um, attracted to that person. He's like, then you should spend time with them and ask them questions and question them and see, you know, see what they're all about. You know, don't just fall into things just blindly. You know, like a lot of, he would talk about how a lot of people from the West would become allured by the external trappings of people. You know, like if they, you know, if they look the part, then they, it must be true. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah. Um, and so he was talking about going beyond that and actually just like really getting into the philosophy of things and really questioning and, and talking about how it's okay to question, you know, and, and be satisfied with the answers. And until you're satisfied with the answers, don't accept what you're being told. And so, and, and at the same time, there's also the etiquette of like not challenging somebody, but, you know, just really like questioning and being, becoming satisfied you know, philosophically in that way. Um, so, so that was good advice. So I tried that with different people and, 
And sometimes with those people, it, it didn't really work out because they didn't like being questioned. So that would give me an indication straight away that they were not the person that I really wanted to spend a lot of time with. Mm. So it was sort of almost like by default and by, uh, um, what would you say, by, uh, by deduction, you know, in a way, you know, like it's not this guy, it's not that guy, it's not that guy until I found the guy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, right? sure. So then once, and then so once, once, once I felt like I'd found the person that I really did want to find out a lot more from and hear from, then, um, then, you know, that, that, that interaction, you know, was, was, uh, was really special. And I spent a lot of time speaking with the person that eventually became my guru before I moved into the temple. Um, that was over a period of a couple months. And when, you know, I started thinking about it and thinking about the possibility of, of, you know, I don't know, maybe this lifestyle could be for me. Um, then things started accelerating and uh, ev which eventually led me to, you know, just living in the temple and taking that lifestyle. Yeah. And, you know, I'm trying to think what's, um, what's like a daily routine or a daily schedule once you take up that lifestyle. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think from what I, the brief knowledge I have, there's lots of meditation involved, um, lots of mindfulness. What, what sort of things, what's it like in that mm. lifestyle? Well, what was, what was really cool, um, especially at that time, is that there weren't an awful lot of, um, there wasn't an awful lot of Western influence in, uh, in Vrindavan at that time. Um, so things were very, uh, quite rustic. And it seemed like it hadn't really changed, you know, for, you know, a couple centuries, really. Um, you know, we were still pumping water from the local well with a, with a pump. And, uh, you know, there was one, one phone in the middle of town that, you know, you queue up for an hour and uh, basically, you know, like watch your money, like getting, getting drained away by this phone call. So you'd have to sort of speak and, you know, have you seen those disclaimers with the uh, commercials? where they go through all the symptoms of taking a particular drug and they speak really quickly. There's no pause in between the words. Yeah. Yeah. And so you'd end up having these conversations like that. Like, hi mom, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Hope everybody's fine. Okay. Talk to you next week. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> conversations like that. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, so, you know, there was stuff like that. And then in the mornings, you know, like, um, you know, we'd wake up, I'd wake up probably around three o'clock, 3 AM, go down to the local river, um, actually go down to a local field, uh, you know, do my uh, morning of business in the field. Pigs would run along, take care of that. And uh, they were, <laughs> the fresher, the better for those guys. Uh, and then uh, head to the local river and uh, take a bath in the dark. And, um, and then head back to the temple for the morning services, which started at 4.30. And then we'd go through uh, a whole morning. There'd be um, singing and stuff like that at 4.30. And then we do a meditation and it's a mantra meditation, which basically means that you repeat a, a mantra. Mantra is uh, a combination of two words, mana, which means the mind and triate, which means to free. So mantra means basically that you're repeating a phrase, which is, which um, frees your mind. So in other words, it goes, it supports that idea of going beyond the material. So you connect with, you know, the divine, the universe, God, whatever, you, however you want to describe it um, through these mantras. And then in that way, then you clear, clear your mental process and clear your connection with, with the divine in that way. So we would do that kind of meditation till about seven o'clock. And then there'd be um, a lecture from uh, a particular part of scripture. Um, we'd have some question and answers about, about the class. And then after that, then we get, get on with cleaning the temple visiting the local people and our day would pretty much be the same every single day and that would just be the morning and then in the evening we'd have evening services where everybody would come back together again probably and <laughs> the unfortunate part of, about that for me is that we'd have a full um three course indian meal at about 9 30 at night which would just it would be like eating a lead ball basically which would put me unconscious pretty quick and yeah. then i'd be up at three o'clock and ready to go so <laughs> yeah that sounds fascinating how long did it take you to adjust because obviously this is you know very different to western life yeah 100 percent. i mean um you know and the celibacy thing was uh, was no uh, no easy matter either um no i'd say probably 
um, I'd say probably about six months, six months, probably to, to, to be a little bit more, um, to be a bit more accurate, I'd say probably a year fully to get right in the groove with it. And um, felt great. It was actually the best time of my life, as far as I can tell, so far, yeah. um, in terms, at least from the angle of feeling, it wasn't like um, I had no responsibility that, because I was running away from it, but it just felt like I was just free to do whatever. No one was really dependent on me. And I was free to do, pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. And, you know, I'd chosen the kind of lifestyle that I wanted to, to, uh, to live. So, you know, within those parameters, I was basically free to do whatever I wanted. And it was great. Yeah. And you did it for 10 years, right? Yeah, I did it for 10 years. And it wasn't necessarily that, that you know, I just kind of, you know, like, I don't know, needed to get it on or needed a girlfriend or whatever. It wasn't really so much like that as much as it was more, I felt like I just wanted to do something out in the world. Yeah. You know, business or yeah. whatever, express myself in some kind of way. Yeah, sure. And then um, I'm going to move on to, did you move to Oregon yeah. straight away from there? I did not. I, I, um, I actually ended up marrying a girl from California and then we moved to California um, from, from there. Okay. And so that's how I ended up in California. Yeah. I do want to talk more about California, but just my final question related to yeah. your time in India. Um, what do you think are the main lessons that either your guru gave you or that you learned from that 10 year period there? Hmm. Mm, that's a really good question. Um, there were so many, um, but um, you know, he, he um, one of the final. I'd say one of the final things that he talked to me about was integrating whatever I do in the world, integrating that with spiritual practice. That's not to say that whatever you do in the world is spiritual. But I think it really depends on what your motivations and what your inspirations are for doing it. And, in, and then in, in one sense, if you dedicate whatever it is that you're doing to, to God or, you know, who, who, you know, your higher power, however you want to describe it, um, then it can transform that mundane activity into something that is spiritual and that is congruent with the spiritual path that you're following. So in other words, it's not exactly the activity itself. But you can, you know, and, or it can become um, something that's, that's uh, 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 how am I trying to say it? It would be something that would be um, enhancing your life because of that spiritual connection, as opposed to just undertaking a mundane activity just because you have to, because you need the money or for whatever reason, right? Mm. Um, so in that sense, it was, it was almost like, you know, just because you're leaving the temple and you're not becoming a monk doesn't necessarily, or not pursuing the, the, the lifestyle of a monk doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up your spiritual practice or that you have to do, or that whatever you're doing in terms of like maintaining a family or whatever has to be something that's completely separate from your spiritual practice. Yeah. Okay. So that, yeah. that would also depend on. You know, depend on the kind of work that you're doing. You know, if you became a mercenary or something like that, probably not so congruent with spiritual life. But I don't know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. No, it does sound like valuable lessons. And then after that, let's move on to the California side of things. What sort of yeah. stuff did you get up to there? Um, 18 years, quite a while. Yeah. What stuff? What was California like? Um, California was amazing. Um, I loved it straight away. Um, uh, my background a little bit is I, I, I come from a military family. My grandfather was in the military, his father before that. My father was in the military. And so consequently, as a child, we traveled around a lot. And I very quickly um, enjoyed or realized that I enjoyed um, hot weather and hot climates a lot more than I enjoyed living in England. And um, so, you know, I've always been kind of predisposed a little bit to that, you know, the dry heat. So California was, was perfect for me. I, uh, most of the time when I lived in India was in North India. So it was, again, that dry desert heat. And it, it really suited me a, quite well. And in California, the same thing. It was, I lived in Southern California. Um, 
average temperature any time of the year is pretty much 70 degrees. So it was awesome. Yeah. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. We lived in, we, we moved and lived in LA to start with. And I spent uh, all of the time while I was in California, in Southern California. Yeah, sounds awesome, man. And then how did Oregon come about? Oregon came about because um, once I moved to California, um, aside from figuring out what I wanted to do with my life in terms of work and maintaining, you know, a family life, um, I'd also uh, I'd also been interested in the martial arts, you know, most of my life and pursued different kinds of, of arts um, when I lived in England and then growing up. And I and the break I took was obviously when I was living in India, but um, I decided that I wanted to start um, pursuing a, a martial art. And while I was in India, a friend of mine had brought an old videotape and we watched um, the second UFC event that had happened. And when I watched that, I realized that, you know, the face of martial arts was going to change from that point on. Mm. And any of the arts that I'd previously done, which were boxing, Muay Thai, and I was a big Bruce Lee fan. And so I'd done some Jeet Kune Do. And I realized that actually, you know, the, the way things were changing, I really should learn a grappling style. And the only contact that I come in, come into with any kind of grappling was doing Jeet Kune Do and a little bit of judo, which had become popular in England because I believe uh, we'd won a gold medal in the Olympics in the seventies in judo. So judo was like a, you know, that was, that was considered to be a really good thing to do in England at that time. And um, so uh, I'd heard of the Gracies. I liked, uh, I liked the idea of, of learning a, a ground fighting style. And so I, uh, I initially started my jujitsu journey in 2003 um, with Hicks and Gracie in Los Angeles. Wicked, man. And, yeah. you know, if there's anybody listening who isn't familiar, mm-hmm. on a, you know, a basic definition, what is Brazilian jujitsu, would you say? Right. Well, um, the best description that I've heard of it is that it's the, the art and science of control leading to submission. And um, that phrase was coined by uh, a guy that I'm really inspired by called John Danaher. Mm. And, um, you know, basically that's the, ascent, the, the essence of what jujitsu is all about. It, it's known as a ground fighting style, but you don't spend all your time on the ground. Obviously, there's, you know, there's, stand, there's the, the, uh, the standing side of, of things as well. You know, clinching, wrestling, as well as, you know, being on your back and, and working different kinds of controls and submissions from your back. So in a sense, it's like, not just in a sports sense, but also from a self-defense standpoint, it's actually a really good art to learn for anybody. Yeah. And what sort of things are you up to at the moment? Do you teach um, Mm. group classes, private classes? Uh, What sort of training do you do? Yeah. um, So now I, I, um, that was primarily my uh, reason for moving to Oregon. Um, There's a lot of jujitsu in Southern California. And uh, my wife and I, in the course of working, had had come up to uh, Oregon a few times and we both really liked it. So I'd sort of earmarked it as a possible place that I might want to move to at some point. And uh, so eventually we did that three years ago and the whole idea was for me to start a jujitsu school here. So eventually I got my black belt in uh, 2016 mm-hmm. um, at the age 50. I started really late in jujitsu, so I was 37 as a white belt. And um, I got my black belt by 50. And um, once I'd gotten my black belt, I wanted to open my own school. So we moved to Oregon so I could do that. And now I have students here and I teach group classes as well as private lessons and self-defense seminars. So, you know, I'm pretty busy with, with stuff like that. Yeah. And um, for example, if there was a beginner looking to start out in jujitsu, what advice yeah. would you give them in their journey? Mm. Um, what I would suggest is that you check out not just the instructor in the school, but also check out, you know, the other students, because they're going to be the people that you primarily spend most of your time with and training with. So you want to make sure that you're in a bit of, in a safe environment. Um, you know, jujitsu as as opposed to a lot of other martial arts is, you know, full contact, um, not in terms of impact, but in terms of like, you're actually rolling 
at the speed that you might roll in a live, a real situation on the street or, you know, in a, a competition. There's, there's no real difference. Only, the only difference actually between like a competition or a, or a real situation, as opposed to training in jiu-jitsu really is just the intention. And so, you know, some people can't turn that off. You know, most guys have a quite a competitive spirit that are involved in the martial arts. And, but it's good to kind of be able to switch gears a little bit and, and back that intensity off. And, you know, so understanding training for training purposes as opposed to competition. And so if you're in an environment where people, where guys are competing with each other all the time, there's a good high probability that you're going to get injured. And, you know, that's basically the thing that you mainly need to avoid. And obviously you don't want to be in a toxic environment either where people are bullying each other, mm. um, you know, whether it's over or whether it's subtle, um, you know, you with a bunch of meatheads, you know, you're just going to get hurt. And uh, so, you know, I'd say that that's one of the main things that I would check out. First of all, make it doable, you know, make it someplace that's close to where you live so that it's not a big deal, you know, like traveling there every single day. And then also make sure that the environment is right for you and don't be satisfied until you find the right environment for you. Because remember, you know, it's a, it's customer service and, you know, you have every right to, you know, pick the place that you want that's going to work for you. Yeah, of course. And Throughout your, you know, your career and your Brazilian jiu-jitsu journey, what do you think the main lessons have been for you in terms of what you've learned from the sport? Mm. That um, failure is not an impediment, and dep- and it and depending on how you look at it, um, really in terms of learning jiu-jitsu, we're basically investing in failure repeatedly. Um, and it teaches you to have a, I, I think anyway, for me, it, it taught me to have a different relationship with failure, um, that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, that it was actually just a, you know, a learning experience. And rather than it being something that would, you know, that would either decide whether or not the experience works or it doesn't work based on failure, as opposed to it being, it works and failure is part of it and something that challenges you to overcome. And it gives you an opportunity then to see things in a different way. And, you know, jujitsu is such a dynamic art that you're presented with a lot of problems to solve at a very high rate of speed, you know, with another human being, you know, that, you know, as much as you have a plan of what you want to do to that person, they also have the same kind of a plan. And are dealing with that so you're problem solving at a very high high level you know every single time you engage in jiu-jitsu and so it teaches you a lot of a lot of different 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 lessons but you know that that relationship with failure is a big one but also kind of understanding that being uncomfortable is not necessarily a reason to quit you know so there's also that relationship with being uncomfortable you know and as we can see you know in life you know there's a lot of adversity and depending on how you how you look at that will determine you know success or not in a lot of cases mm. yeah we um often on the podcast come back the name is actually from you know come back from adversity that was his initial premise with that, i love that yeah yeah thank you with that do you think that brazilian jiu-jitsu has helped you with maybe some personal challenges that you've come across in your life so far 100 mm. percent um uh, I've always, I, I, um, I don't know, if, I don't know if we talk about this on the podcast or not, but um, uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD from childhood. Mm. Um, my father was not physically abusive, but he was very emotionally abusive. Yeah, okay. um, he was physically abusive to my mother, which I witnessed, um, and and so and and I've suffered with depression most of my life. Um, and a lot of times, especially when I was a teenager, you know, things are, you know, it's rough. How old are you? By the I'm, way, 20, I'm 23 years old. going to be 24 next month. All right. So you just pretty you've just kind of gotten out of the whole teenage years and yeah, just I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it can be, it can be kind of rough, you know, you're kind of figuring yourself out as a person, you know, you have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different impressions coming at you from different angles about different things wondering what to do with your life. And then you've also got, you know, your family of origin and all of that baggage that comes with all of that. Um, and um, so, uh, 
you know, I'd always struggled with this. And what I found that with the spiritual path that I was following, but then also um, in conjunction with the martial arts, um, it's helped me kind of like understand that from a different perspective, you know, and see it more as a challenge rather than something that would take me out of the game. You know what I mean? So like, it's not like I didn't, or it's not like I, I stopped suffering from depression, mm. but it was, I was able more to recognize it, recognize the symptoms of when it was coming on, do something about it early on, early on. So a lot of time, eventually it got, I got to the point where I could stop myself from going into that dark place. And I, I see that as a direct result of, of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, yeah. just in, in, in terms of just dealing with that adversity on a day-to-day -day basis, mm. you know, it's almost like, you know, you can't, I think the Marines have a thing where they talk about embrace the suck and it yeah, really yeah. just kind of felt like that, you know, and it was, and, and just changing your perspective and playing with adversity in that way was actually quite liberating in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, it wasn't something to be feared. It was something to actually engage with. Yeah, it does sound it. I mean, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that, you know, BJJ might be the main thing, but aside from that, uh, are there any other methods that you use to combat depression when it comes on? Maybe something esoteric, like, you know, meditation, journaling, reading. You've got any other techniques or is it mainly the, the art, the martial arts? Yeah, um, you know, meditation and things like that are very important. I find at that time. Um, yeah, the martial arts for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I do spend a lot of time now, you know, just and, and I think that the main thing is not running from it. It's just kind of like really trying to not face it in an egotistical way, but just trying to break it down. Like, what exactly is this that I'm plagued with, right? What is it that's really on my mind that's kind of trying to drag my consciousness down? Is it real? Or is it really just something that my mind is just trying to throttle me with that has no real substance to it? You know, it, it's like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of times it felt like, Whenever I go to a dark place, you know, uh, mentally, you know, when I was younger, it was almost like, you know, when you try and pick up the soap in the shower and it kind of slips out your hands. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Where's this coming from? You know, I, I would never really, I never really thought about things in terms of like, why is this happening to me? Because that just seemed like a bad question. Mm. Um, but, um, but certainly in terms of like trying to get a handle on it and just like, where do I start with this? Trying to unwrap all this stuff. And, um, but I found that, you know, with meditation and then also, you know, with the martial arts, the, I can sit in it and just almost try and see it for what it is these days. And uh, a lot of times there's really nothing to it. And it's actually just static, you know, mental static, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, it'll be triggered by a memory or something like that. Yeah. Um, other, other times not. Actually, you know what? Recently, I'll tell you, recently, um, you might find this interesting. Um, a guy, I was on YouTube and um, a guy was doing a walkthrough of Sheffield City Centre. And mm -hmm. it was, he was literally just walking through. So he was walking down, um, he was walking down Division Street and then yeah, walking yeah. past the City Hall down onto Fargate and all around there. And it's changed a lot, right? Like I said, when I was a, when I was a kid, especially around Division Street and all around there, it really has changed a lot. Okay. And a lot of the places where I used to go aren't even there anymore. And, um, and it was kind of weird. I was watching this video and I'm looking at this town that I loved when I was, and I had so much fun there when I was a teenager. And I was looking at it and it was so different and it, it kind of threw me off. And I ended up being in this like this dark mood all day. Like it felt like, yeah. oh my God, even like my, the, you know, my, my origins, there's no like, um, there's no connection there anymore. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's, it had all changed. It had all moved on. And, you know, it's obviously this is a part of life, you know, things develop and, 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 uh, and, and change shape. Um, but for some reason, it just kind of really got me that day. That was the last time that I actually felt kind of depressed. You know, it felt like, oh, shit, you know, like it's all gone. It's all changed now. And, you know, those memories are, are, are literally just, you know, like snapshots in time. 
you know, it's like looking at an old black and white photo from the 40s or something. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I think I know what you're saying. And then have you got any desires to go back to Sheffield, say, to visit or? Mm. I think like um, I think like what you said, I, th I, I found that really interesting is that, you know, mostly it's nostalgia because mm -hmm. the, like I said, the Sheffield that I remember is not even really there. And I'd, I'd really even go as far as to say the England I remember is not actually the same as it was. So most of it is just nostalgia, really. Um, but in reality, I mean, I'm the same as you. I went home, like you said, 2011, and, you know, it was like a week, and I wanted to just leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just, it just wasn't my place anymore, you know, I kind of moved on. Yeah I, yeah, I feel like that's definitely the same with me. I've been gone two years, signed up for a third, and I've got a few other destinations in the world that I'm looking at, and I can't see myself living back in the UK for a while. We never know what's going to happen, obviously, but... Yeah, as you said, there's just something about it that, yeah, it seems to have just passed me by then. I think, yeah, I don't really fancy going back down that avenue again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of those things. I guess it depends on, on uh, how much you identify with your past and identify with the place where you come from. I mean, I have, you know, it's always a phenomenon to me that I, I have friends back in Sheffield and they've never left. You know, they married the girl from, you know, down the street. Yeah, yeah, and you know they spend their whole life in the same place. They're still there. They're happy. They don't want to leave. They would never go to foreign places like London, you know what I mean? <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, you know, know. So yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's a real phenomenon of people from the north. You know that? Yeah, yeah. You know they're like, they're set in their ways. It's always been that way, and that's the only way it's going to be. Yeah, I always find because it because it's just not yeah. true. I mean, like, if you're happy, if you're happy doing it, I think great. But there is a part of me that, well, there's a huge part of me that just can't live like that. I need to, I need to experience as many different things as possible because otherwise, yeah, you could go stale and stagnant. And I, you know, I always feel that I don't want to get to the end of my life, and the only thing I've really known is Manchester or Sheffield. It's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I have a really good friend that, you know, that that, um, you know, married married his girlfriend that he got involved with when he was 15 and has stayed in Sheffield his whole life. And he's completely happy. And it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm not even judging him harshly for, for making that choice. You know, that's just him. It suits him. And, you know, quite frankly, I really wouldn't have him any other way. I mean, he's, um, he's an awesome dude, um, but that's just not my choice. And I can't even get, get, I can't really, get in the headspace of really understanding somebody that would that would want to do that yeah it's a tricky one i mean I, I suppose coming to the end of the conversation steve we've covered you know the past the present the question that i always leave the guest with and for some people it can be quite tricky is what are the future yeah. aims you know what's next what would you like to achieve in the future both personally and professionally hmm um, I think that, uh, well, professionally, um, as a jujitsu instructor, I think I'd like to get up to the point where I have about 200 students and, um, you know, I have at least 10 black belts um, that I can rely on and that uh, I can just walk away from that. And I'd like to retire to India, frankly. Oh, okay. And uh, pursue my spiritual practice a little bit more seriously than I than I have been recently and recently be, meaning the last, you know, 15 or so years. Um, I have two kids and uh, that are now in their twenties and um, well, my daughter is 19. My son is 20, 21. Mm. And um, so now, you know, it's getting to the point where I feel like I can kind of concentrate a little bit more on, on my spiritual life, you know, and as I get older, I definitely would like to do that. Um, I, I was, you know, you touched upon it a little bit. I think in terms of regret, you know, I hear that on their, on their deathbed, people don't talk about the days that they missed from work. You know, they talk about opportunities that mm -hmm. they, that yeah, they yeah. Hadn't, haven't taken or taken advantage of. And so I feel like, you know, I'd really like to, if I don't end up going back to India and pursuing my spiritual life a little bit more seriously there, I think I'll regret that. Um, so... <laughs> You know, that's my idea. I'd like to make that happen. I don't have a lot of material aspiration, to be honest. 
I'm not pursuing, you know, being a billionaire or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm quite comfortable with where I'm at and uh, I'm pursuing getting better and definitely um, getting more financially set up. But, you know, lots of money is not my goal. Absolutely, man. Is there anywhere we can find out more about um, your jujitsu on social media or do you prefer to stay private? Um, you know, to be honest, you know, most of my life is kind of private. I'm one of those guys that grew up before the internet. Thank yeah, God. Sure. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I, envy you. I, I actually really envy you on that note. Oh, man, you know, it's like I feel really bad for these people that, you know, get these quotes pulled up from 10 years ago. I'm yeah. like, oh, like, God, you know? oh, yeah. Uh, like cancel, again, sorry? Do you mean like cancel culture where if there's a celebrity who 10 years ago has said something slightly inappropriate, it's aimed at them? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Because like I look at it like, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Carlin, his, um, his podcast called Hardcore History. I feel like I might have heard of it, but I've never listened. I've never listened. Mm. It's I, I would highly recommend it. And um, one of the things that I love about his podcast is that he talks about history but then he'll he'll put you in the context of the times, which I think is really important. Yeah, you know, because it's like when I look back on it and I'm talking, you know, and I think about different conversations or different things that was going on in the 80s. And I look back on it. I'm like, Jesus Christ, good job. No one was filming that shit. Yeah, um, yeah. But but um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, and I think about, you know, some of the stupid ideas I had when I was a teenager and to imagine that that would be pulled up somehow and be used against me now as a 55 year old seems absurd to me. I'm not even the same person I was back then. Why yeah. do I speak of thinking the same way? Yeah, so, I, yeah. I find it so judgmental and so, yeah, so, so absurd as you mentioned where of course you're gonna be different when you're 15 to when you're 30 and so forth. So to be, you know, to use the, the most minute detail to use against somebody, I find, I find it astonishing and it's something that you know really annoys me in this current day and age even with this podcast for example I probably mm. said something I've done 120 episodes now and I've probably said something that in 10 years time when I listen back to won't be acceptable but right now yeah. in context it is and just for some reason whether it be I don't know a cultural shift language thieves come around you know things change and they're not acceptable anymore but you can't then you know, you can't then go in back and take the context away from the time, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. You know, I mean, it's it's really a shame that it seems like a lot of the debates these days are really lacking in the nuance of things. Yeah. And just kind of like, you know, just really listening to other people. You know, it's like, you know, I, I often think about it. It's almost like when I'm when I'm engaging with somebody in jujitsu, you know, I have to kind of figure out what their game is, not just what I want to do to them, but also what they're trying to do to me. So I have to pay attention to what they're doing. Yes. So I, li I liken it to a conversation or a, even better, a debate, right? If you don't understand somebody else's argument, how can you argue against them? You're basically just talking. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. You know I'm what I mean? And I, and I see these things online and people are just talking at each other and nobody is listening. Yes. Listening is... because. Yeah, yeah, because they're like, and most of the time people are saying the same kind of things, just in a different way. Yeah. I don't know. It could be very, a very utopian way of looking at things. I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, no. <laughs> no I, think the first I, time. I think I agree. And, you know, that's why I started the podcast. So I could actually listen to somebody's point of view about something, you know, that I might not think of it in that manner, but they might be able to change my mind if I have a rational conversation with them rather than a screaming match via Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, 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 definitely. Or it seems like these days there's a very, very much of a push of, you know, in the middle of a debate, unless somebody has experience of a particular thing to a high degree, generally speaking, they're not really entitled to an opinion about it, mm. which I find absurd. Because, you know, it's like, do I, do I have to be, you know, an expert mountain climber to know that I, that, you know, the, the climbing Everest has inherent danger attached to it. Yeah, yeah, for I, real. I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually but, quite prominent at the moment with um, the government and footballers, where, for example, I saw some uh, Tory MPs tweet that Marcus Rashford should stick to football and stay away from politics. And you think, 
just because mm. he's a footballer, you know, of course he's going to have a political opinion. And he's done quite yeah. a lot of good for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it takes somebody like a Rashford that has that platform to be able to make things move. Yeah, you know, whether you whether you agree with him or not is neither here nor there, really. But, you know, that's really how things get started. And something that becomes part of life starts in that kind of way, right? I mean, people always talk about how, you know, when you come up with a new idea, first of all, people will laugh at you. Yeah. Right? And then, and then suddenly, you know, everybody's doing it and then they look back on it as being genius. Yeah, yeah. Or, or why, did it, why did, weren't we doing this in the first place? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I suppose we're going to wrap this up now, Steve. Can I just say thanks very much for coming on today, man. Really appreciate it, especially with the time difference. And I found the whole hour fascinating. And I'm not just saying this to blow smoke. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, very best of luck with your jiu-jitsu school. Let's hopefully do this again in a few months' time, see where you're at. And mm. yeah, once again, absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Uh, Connor, <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Um, and it's been great to talk with you. How did we connect on social media? I don't even really remember. No, this is the crazy thing. I have this, um, what's the word? Uh, I, I literally just, I don't know, maybe it was a hashtag or something. I end up just doing a lot of follows for things yeah. that look interesting. Genuinely, I've absolutely no idea how we end up connecting, but you know, I yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird one. Like, I, yeah. like 80% of my guests. And I think I just asked for a podcast, but this is the, the, the um, advantage of the internet where, for example, I've really enjoyed this conversation now and we have common interests, Manchester United, Sheffield, both moved abroad. So, you know, there is a, it's good to be able to connect with someone like-minded in the most random way possible. That's the beauty of the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Plus, I love the name, the comeback. Yeah. Thank you very That's much. Good. That's yeah. good. But yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, take care. All right. You too, Connor.